All right, I've got with me Rob Roy. And so, of course, this is a Scottish guy with a big sword, uh, and uh, he chops people up in a clever way for good reasons. Uh, welcome, Rob Roy. Well, thank you very much for having me. Your accent sounds American. Well, it is. I, I actually did live seven years in Scotland, uh, but I was born in Massachusetts, and um, I think of myself as having kind of a mid-Atlantic accent, actually. Okay, and, and do you still have that big sword, like in the movie? Uh, I don't get any residuals from that Rob Roy movie, uh, so I'm thinking of doing a movie about Liam Neeson, just to get even with him, actually. <laughs> the, the curious thing is, you mentioned Rob Roy, the, the Highland cattle thief, but uh, I'm French-Canadian on both sides of my family. I, I, have, I have no Scotch blood in me at all. Oh. When people but ask my father Scotland. if he had any Scotch in him, his standard answer was, usually... <laughs> so, <coughs> excuse me, I still have this cough. Hopefully um, the pod people won't be too annoyed with my cough. But uh, now, when you lived in Scotland for a little while, then uh, did, did you get a lot of attention because of your name? Oh, yeah. People would buy you a jam of whiskey, which was kind of wasted on me because I would much prefer a pint of beer. But, yeah, it was like being George Washington in this country or something like that. But... Uh, I made great friends there. Uh, we, we go back to Scotland and visit. Uh, I still walk into my old cottage like I still own the place. It's uh, wonderful. I just have a, a great attachment to Scotland. We were there a year ago doing some megalithic work up in the Orkney Islands. A, a guy I worked with for years in Scotland is coming to visit us, and he's a stonemason. He's coming here in September to help us uh, move the, the the famous 50-ton stone we're working on right now. So we do keep a close contact with uh, Scotland and Jackie, my wife's uh, brothers and sisters, all live in the southwest of England, so that's quite a connection too. And and then of course um, we're talking about the Rob Roy from hundreds of years ago, uh, who's uh, um, Scotland's Rob Roy. But you, sir, are our Rob Roy, as an our as in the the eco building community, or or even the permaculture community. We have our own personal Rob Roy, and that would be you. And you've written a big gob of books, 15 books on, on eco-building, um, and, uh, uh, and, and in this podcast today, we're going to focus on my favorite, which touches on eco-building, but it's uh, called Mortgage Free, and it's a strategy to get into your, to, to leave the rat race and, and get into your eco-building faster. Um, so now... When I went out to Amazon earlier today and I got a list of the books, um, uh, all of them were ones that I was already familiar with, and many of them I've, I've purchased in the past. Um, but there are several books about cordwood. In fact, I think, I think that you could be considered the leading guy on cordwood stuff. Is that accurate? Well, I think that's true. That's, that's certainly our main line here at Earthwood Building School. Ninety percent of our work is in cordwood masonry, and, and most of the other ten percent is in earth sheltered housing, a little bit of timber framing for the rest of us thrown in. Probably eighty percent cordwood, I would say. Okay. All right. Um, and you got a DVD about uh, building with cordwood? Yep. The complete. Okay. The complete cordwood DVD. It's uh, three and a quarter hours of instruction and tours of a variety of uh, accorded homes all around North America. Okay. Um, and uh, you've got at least one book out about earth-sheltered homes and at least one about underground homes. 
Well, yeah, the Earth Sheltered uh, Houses book is in print through New Society, and it uh, updates my earlier work with Sterling back from the 70s and 80s uh, called Underground Houses. Uh, we found that uh, underground housing was kind of a restrictive uh, terminology, and uh, Earth Sheltered Houses is probably more accurate because there aren't very many truly underground houses in the world, but there are a lot of very successful Earth Sheltered Houses, and you can be uh, just about as energy efficient with an earth sheltered house uh, as you can with a truly underground house. Okay, and then you you already mentioned uh, mentioned timber framing for the rest of us, but I think people might not know that that's the actual title of one of your books, timber framing for the rest of us. Right, and what that means is we're not talking about the traditional uh, ancient method of timber framing, which I have the highest regard for. I even belong to the Timber Framers Guild, and they haven't kicked me out yet. Uh, but what we're talking about is, is that type of timber framing involving the use of good quality uh, screws, such as GRK or Timberlock screws, and mechanical fasteners, such as the kind that Simpsons makes. And it's the way that most contractors, backyard builders, owner builders actually build their places is not with the, the uh, wonderful mortise and tenon joints, but uh, with commonly available and not expensive mechanical fasteners. And the advantage is that it's, it, you don't need this high skill set and a lot of expensive tools to do your mortising and tenoning and all that sort of thing. Um, I just don't have the time, money, or patience for it myself. And this is why we got into this timber framing for the rest of us, because we couldn't see a book out there that, that talked that there's a lot of great books about traditional timber framing, but I don't know of another that talks about uh, what most people are doing, which is mechanical fastness. And then your your latest book is called The Coincidental Traveler, and that's co-written by you and your wife. That's right. Uh, the first book, uh, Jackie's had parts in, in my other books through photography and, and that sort of thing, but this is our first co-authored book, and I think of it as the mortgage-free of travel. So the same kinds of philosophies appear in The Coincidental Traveler. It's how people, and we're in our 60s, and we travel all over the world doing things like couch surfing. I don't know if you've heard of couch surfing. Go to yep. couchsurfing.com. And we're in our 60s, and we've had wonderful experiences with couch surfing, where you can stay for free with instant friends all over the world, and you would do the same for them. You don't have to. It's not a directly reciprocal thing, but it's a chance to meet uh, people in other countries and, and uh, you know, get, get an inside uh, line on what's happening there. Another example is uh, what we call taking advantage of ourselves. We, we teach our workshops all over the world, and we use it as a vehicle for travel. Uh, we've taught quartered masonry to Maoris and, uh, in, in New Zealand, to Mapuche Indians in Chile. We're working with the Inuits up in Labrador in June. So it, it's uh, somebody might say, well, gee, I don't, I'm not a quartered teacher. I can't do that. But everybody's something. You might be a tennis player, a quilter. It doesn't matter. You've got friends all over the world. And with the computer the way it is now, you can easily find these friends all over the world. So now, uh, is your place currently signed up for couchsurfing.org? We are. We are members of Couchsurfing, and we would take people here. Uh, there are 850,000 members on couchsurfing.org, and uh, there's a profile for each one of them. So you can go to these profiles and find people that you think you might hit it off well with. This is what just recently we went down to the Virgin Islands. It was the first time that Jackie and I had ever been to any of the Caribbean islands. And we found dozens of couch surfers just in St. Thomas. And we sent out five feelers to people that we thought would be uh, uh, good matches. 
And three of them, which is a very good percentage, wrote back and said, yeah. Um, and one of them couldn't host us because she was going to be off-island while we were there. But we did manage to have good experiences with the other two. Well, that's a, that's a great uh, return rate, I think. <laughs> so now the book goes into more than couchsurfing. Oh, my, yes. That's just an appendix in the book. Uh, there's, uh, I, actually, Chapter 3 is, is uh, about probability theory. You might say, wow, probability theory travel what's the connection there well i think somebody who doesn't have an understanding of probability theory is at a great disadvantage in this life and you can use it in uh, building uh, creating uh, cultivating coincidences to find materials for example through extending yourself using probability theory to your advantage same with travel uh, but that's a, that's a big subject i spend a whole chapter on i actually wrote a chapter on the uh, uh the uh, probability theory that was my little, ah, okay that was my little pet so now, you know, with probability theory, then you start getting into complexity science and chaos theory. Um, well, yeah, but can I just give you one little example appropriate to the mortgage-free topic that we're discussing today? Sure, uh, sure. We had some visitors. We, we have our houses open on open house once in a while. In fact, on Saturday, May 4th, we're open uh, for open house. And we had a bunch of people. I was giving a tour around the place. And we came up to our latest little guest house called the Hermit's Hut. And there was a nice uh, new... Uh, door, not new, an, uh, a beautiful old door on the place. And I explained to people how I use probability theory to, uh, to you know, to uh, uh, get this door. And um, a bunch of people were around, and I said, look, we need a new door for the hermit's hut. And I'll bet that one of you in this group, there's nine or ten of you, one of you might know where I can get a door. And Tom Huber at Paul Smith's College says, I've got two of them. Come out and, uh, come out and pick the one you want. He'd gotten these beautiful doors. They were shipped over from England on a container to build a big Adirondack uh, great camp, and the camp never got built. And there were these 200 doors that came in on the container, and he ended up with a couple of them. And not only did he give us a beautiful uh, pine door for the hermit's hut for free, but he took us out to eat. Well, <laughs> none of that would have happened if we hadn't extended ourselves and created a coincidence, taking advantage of probability theory uh, to, to gain materials. We do it all the time. So now, while what you're in mortgage-free is the topic today, and we're going to get to it in a moment, but we've got three things to talk about before we get to mortgage-free, uh, unless, of course, there's more because we, we stumble across more topics. The next interesting topic is stone moving. Yeah, megalithics. What so so now I've I've already I was talking to you for an hour before we started recording the podcast, so I, now I know what megalithics are, but. That, you, know, you want to share? Yes. Uh, I've had a long passion with stone circles and, and great stones all over the world. I first visited Stonehenge when I was 19 years old, back in the days when you could pay the man a shilling and walk in and wander in amongst the stones. And at that time, my analytical mind said, how in the world did they transport and erect these great stones? Now I'm equally interested in why did they do it. But at that time, how was the thing? So back in 1987, Jackie and I built our first stone circle here at Earthwood, and uh, we experimented with moving up to two-ton stones by hand. We found it to be very difficult, but we kept with it, and we kept learning techniques. I worked with some great stone movers in England, and now I'm, I'm actually one of the better-known stone movers in the world. We're working on a 50-ton stone named Sophia down in New Paltz, New York. She's 32 feet long. 
uh, in September will demonstrate the transportation, two different methods of moving the stone along the, the ground, and then only one method of standing her up because we're not going to take her out of the hole again and put it back in again. So um, that's going to happen in September, and this will be the largest uh, men here or standing stone uh, moved and raised by ancient methods, probably since Inca times, in the, about 1500, when they were moving uh, the stones even larger down in the Cusco area of Peru. But the, the way that we do it is more like what the Neolithic people of Great Britain did four and a half, five thousand years ago. So it's, it's a lot of fun. It's greatly empowering. Women are amazed by what they can do with compound leverage, for example. It's just a very empowering uh, procedure to go through. And, of course, we need to... Cordwood masonry is our main line of work. And with cordwood masonry, people have shown the ability to think out of the box. But with stone circle people, megalithics people, it's box? What box? Is a box? So <laughs> it's another step up from cordwood masonry and the mentality of the people that you're working with. And i got to note here that <clears throat> at some point in time, the Discovery Channel came and recorded you moving some rocks around. Yes, there's going to be a program coming up, I hope, in the next couple of months. Uh, they came over in September. It wasn't actually the Discovery Channel themselves. It was Darlo Smithson from London sent four people over and did two days of filming. What we did was we uh, mechanically took the five-ton capstone off of our earthward trilithon, which is similar to the Stonehenge trilithons in England, and uh, then we put it back up using only materials available to Neolithic people, to wit, wood and rope. Uh, and it went, it went perfectly. We had a wonderful weekend, great people here. The film crew was fantastic. So watch for that in the next couple of months. I don't know the title of it. Discovery plays everything very close to their best. They don't, they don't tell you very long in advance before the program comes out. But if your listeners are, are watching things like History or Discovery Channel, keep an eye out for how Stonehenge was built or something of that nature. A good part of the program should have to do with our putting this uh, capstone back up on a trilithon. And at your website, you have uh, a DVD? Yes, we have a, uh, both a book, uh, a Chelsea Green book uh, called Stone Circles, A Modern Builder's Guide to the Megalithic Revival, and a one-hour DVD, which has nice Celtic music on it, and it sh actually shows us transporting and erecting, you know, fairly business-like stones. Okay, ne on the, on the, the next item I've got on our list is that um, we have a mutual friend, um, and this guy, uh, it seems like uh, um, he mentions your name about every hour of conversation, uh, and that would be Mike Ayler, the yeah. author of the $50 and Up Underground House book. Yeah, and a few we, other books. We have stayed with Mike at Bonner's Ferry, and he has stayed with us here in West Jersey, New York. Uh, I think of him as a, a, a brother. Okay. And uh, um, so now I, I think as we go and we start getting into Mortgage Free, I, I want to, um, because like part of Mortgage Free is that you've got a, a, a temporary shelter, and then you build a small home, and, and then we're going to, I imagine that, and in your book, Mortgage Tree, it talks about different kinds of homes to build. And I want to throw out Mike's designs and and uh, along the way and, and visit with those a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe that's best left for, for later. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, I know that, uh, that that Mike's been pushing me to, to talk to you for a long time. And we were going to make a podcast a couple of months ago, but then I got this, I got sick. So and I'm still trying to shake that cold off, but uh, um, now we're finally doing it. Yes. Yeah, good. Uh, 
Uh, and then the, the the last item before we get jump into the book mortgage free is to talk about um, earth tubes and passive annual heat storage. Yeah, do you want to do that now? Yes. Okay. Yes. Now our uh, house where we live, which is also the Center for a Building School in Bethesda, New York, which is a northern climate, nine thousand degree days. It's about twenty four hundred square feet. It's a roundhouse, two stories, has a living roof on it, and we've got probably 500 tons of earth, earth, earth burning the northern hemisphere of the building. The 60% of the house, which is above ground, is cored with masonry. We have earth tubes, or sometimes called cool tubes or cooling tubes, that extend out from the lower story of the building, maybe 100 feet, it circles around under this earth berm and comes out above grade where it can take the incoming air. And it can be used for either summertime pooling or it can be used to provide preheated air for the masonry stove, which is a round masonry stove in the center of the house, so that you're not pulling in uh, the air temperature of 20 below zero. You know, a stove has to have an equal amount of air coming in as to what goes up the chimney. So instead of pulling sub-zero air into the house, it's being passed through these earth tubes. And probably in the wintertime, it's coming in at around 40 degrees uh, above, which doesn't sound great, but it's a whole lot better than 20 below. So uh, we use the earth tubes both for summertime cooling and for wintertime uh, heating. And uh, they're not an expensive thing to do. We did experiment with a thermal chimney, trying to create a very hot chimney on the roof of the house to see if we could get an updraft to drive the earth tube system. But we just couldn't get enough pizzazz in this black box with the glass on the south side. Just wouldn't create enough heat to create a thermal chimney effect at the top. Uh, so uh, we, we, we gave up on that. Uh, but we can uh, use it in other ways, too. So, yeah, we're great uh, believers in the, um, the earth tube. Um, the main thing is you, it's really important to have a direct uh, air source to your, to your stove. I've seen so many times when people, their stoves are choking because they've built this pipe house and they can't figure out how come the stove's not working. It should heat this house beautifully. And, of course, the answer is they're not bringing any air into the stove and the thing is choking. Well, and, and now what you're suggesting um, to, to bring air from the outside to feed your stove is, is the opposite of, of what uh, Yonto Evans and the other rocket mass heater folks recommend. Well, I don't think that's quite right. Uh, you, you can't have <laughs> combustion without combustion air. I know the rocket, I know the rocket stove. I built one with Yonto in Bath, New York, and uh, but it still yeah. takes. You still have to have incoming, no matter if it's top loading, side loading, or in my lady's chamber. It, you can't have fire without air. So, um, uh, true, absolutely true. And and the uh, the the thing that um, and and it, this kind of comes back to some of the stuff, the conversation that we were having before the podcast about cordwood um, designs uh, and and. Uh, but at the same time, uh, so Yanto, uh, I asked him the same question because I'm in Montana, and so I'm asking Yanto. Uh, and in fact, on the day I was there, the first time I ever met Yanto was when they were having a rocket mass heater convergence of instructors. So there were five rocket mass heater instructors there that day. My my first experience with actually seeing a rocket mass heater. And um, so in Montana, it's it's fairly common that you'll rig things up in such a way that um, you'll have an air intake to a conventional wood stove coming from outside somewhere, um, and that's 
you know, so that way you're not, because you're heating the air in the house, and that way you're not sucking all your hot air out, and instead you're using cold air from outside. Right. And um, so then it took 15 minutes, because I basically suggested this, to do it for a rocket mass heater, and and they all rolled their eyes and, and made it clear that I was a... Uh, not the brightest bulb in the box, and and it then proceeded to explain it to me. And it took 15 minutes until I could buy into what they were saying. Now, many years later, I I think I've got my my head wrapped around it quite a bit better. But um, part of part of what they said was something to the tune of, uh, you know, do you want to be breathing the stale air from indoors? Or the fresh air, which comes in from outdoors, right? And, um, and and so then uh, the the thing is, is that if you simply don't seal your house like a Ziploc bag, and then you run a fire in your home, um, you know, like with a rocket mass heater, then basically, and then plus on top of that, you're heating yourself with efficient heat, which is going to be dominantly radiant or conductive heat, as opposed to convective heat, which is heating the air, then what's going to happen is is that you're going to be far more comfortable with far fresher air, um, you know, while it's pulling the air out of the room, yeah, and then so that air is being replaced throughout your house and other right. little places. Well, we're talking about it's still getting the air. I don't care if it comes into cracks around logins, under your doors and windows, or how it gets in there, but that stove's not going to run without air. True, true. But we were talking about earth tubes, and I think you were saying something about, like, have the air have have that be an air intake for the for the wood fire? Well, the other thing it, it, we do use it for that. But you know, if I were doing it again, I would take a direct air intake right into the side of the firebox or the masonry stove. The earth tubes in our climate here, nine thousand degree days near Montreal, we may not even need earth tubes here. And um, uh, so I don't. I, I haven't even put it into my latest book, Earth Sheltered Housing, because I'm not entirely sure I would do it again myself in this climate. There's also been, you may be aware of, uh, some concern about things like Legionnaire's disease that can, uh, that can happen in the, uh, in the tubes themselves. We have never had a problem of that kind, but it is something that needs to be uh, looked at carefully. So uh, some of the advantages of the earth tubes for us has been it promotes, it promotes movement of air in what are otherwise stagnant areas of the lower story of the house. We have no condensation problem here at Earthwind. I credit that more to insulating around the mass fabric of the building and keeping the mass fabric up above dew point, then I credit the earth tubes, but the earth tubes may be helping in that regard as well. So uh, I don't kind of have all the answers in this. I'm not sure I would uh, use them again, but I would certainly bring in direct combustion air from my masonry stove. Okay, interesting. You, you also mentioned something about passive annual heat storage. Yeah, and that, you've got... Mm-hmm. We, you, you have some you, I have some knowledge thoughts on that. <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, I have a, a good friend in Winchester, Virginia, who used John Haight's passive annual heat storage principles, which is basically that you're surrounding with rigid foam insulation, such as Dow styrofoam, that extends out from the house, and you're enclosing a great quantity of mass between the fabric of the building and this insulation. So you get this, you're, you're trying to influence a huge mass of earth around the house, and apparently it's working well for Jeff. I prefer to uh, have a more close-fitting insulation around what I call the mass fabric of the building itself. That is to say, the surface-bonded concrete blocks, our concrete floors and footings, and there's, you know, it's 100 tons just there. 
Plus, there's all the uh, thermal mass inside the house. The masonry stove is 26 tons. Uh, they got the living roof. There's a certain mass there insulating me for, or protect, not insulating is not the right word, but uh, putting myself in a more favorable uh, starting climate from which we begin to heat and cool. When, when people ask us why we earth shelter the house, basically it's to set the house into a more favorable environment. So uh, instead of building in Plattsburgh, New York, with 9,000 degree days, it's more like we're building in South Carolina with whatever number of degree days that they have. So we move the house a thousand miles further south. However, we can still take advantage of the mass of the house itself to store heat, and uh, and, and then that stored heat gives its gives its BTUs of stored heat back into the ambient instead of conducting readily through the insulation to the exterior. So there's two different thermal masses at play here. One is the mass fabric of the house itself. And the other is the great earth-sheltering mass of the earth itself, which sets us to a more favorable climate from which we begin to heat in the winter and cool in the summer. So it's important to, to differentiate between the two. John hates passive annual heat storage is something in between. He's trying to control a, a much larger mass uh, with his insulation than what we're doing here. But we still have a significant mass the way we're doing it, too. Right. Now, I, how cold does it get in the winter where you are? Well, you know, it's, it, I, it's climate change is real. It doesn't get as cold as it used to do. Uh, right. But uh, 20 below is, is still not an uncommon thing here. We have seen 30 and even 40 below once or twice. But uh, uh, 20 below is about the worst we got this, this past winter, and only for a very short period of time. It definitely, uh, there's definitely climate change. We've been here for 35 years, and the last 20 years have been a lot warmer than the first 15 have been. So... Right. Um, yeah, we're a pretty cold climate. I guess <clears throat> it sounds like it's the same as in Missoula, Montana, which yeah. I, my understanding is John Haight did his work in Missoula, Montana. I he has, right. He has two buildings that he made in, in which he just measured everything. He had like, I don't know, like 100 temperature sensors embedded throughout the mass as well as within the building. Now, he could have been in Minnesota, by the way, John Haight, too. I... After he left Missoula, um, I'm not sure exactly where he went, but uh -huh. I think he's down in New Mexico now. Okay. Oh, wow. He's still with us. Good. Okay. So, um, uh, all right. So, for um, uh, I feel like we kind of skipped past a few things real quick. I'm not sure if you want to go back and add some stuff. Like, I know, for example, with the cordwood books, I left out the part about how there's also a book that's um, a cordwood book, but it's about cordwood saunas. So that's and, that's and, in my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, your book, yeah, your books. I'm only talking about. Well, right. So for for a moment there, we were talking about Hate's book, but now we're back to talking about you and your books. Okay. Um, well, it touches on the same subject that we talked about with the air coming in the house for the rocket stoves. Uh, cordwood masonry is composed of log ends, which are laid transversely in the wall like a rank of firewood. So there's quite a transfer along the end grain, the fibers of the wood that brings air in from the outside. And uh, uh, so even in a sauna, for example, our, our cordwood walls are only eight inches thick. Now, there's an insulated mortar joint. It's important for people to realize that this mortar does not go directly through the wall. There's an insulated space between the inner and outer mortar joints. So in point of fact, the insulated portion, the mortar portion of the wall, has a, a higher insulative value than the wooden portion of the wall does. But the mortar portion of the wall is also up to 40%, even sometimes more than that, of the total uh, uh, area of the wall. 
So now you're going to get air transfer into what we call checks in wood in a round log end. You'll get a primary check will form, and of course you can close that off with clear caulking on both sides of the wall. But in our sauna, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the thing breathes, but even at sub-zero temperatures, we can bring our sauna from whatever the outside temperature is, 10 degrees or whatever, we can bring it up to 165, 170 degrees in about two hours with our wood stove in there. So, um, and the air is just a, a, the fresh air is just a plus. Uh, you can't have a sauna too tight or else you, you start to breathe the carbon dioxide. So you need to transfer that out, but the temperature still maintains at 165 or 170. So this, I think of log ends as so many air-to-air heat exchangers. I marvel at people that build these airtight houses, well-insulated airtight houses, and, and gee, uh, they're easy to heat, but you have to put an air-to-air heat exchanger in to promote fresh air. The cordwood house is a 1,000 or 2,000 air-to-air heat exchangers called log ends. So um, that's, I, I've, I've been to houses where... Um they they did cordwood. They said that they would never do cordwood again because when the wind blows, the wind blows right through the house. Yeah. And in those particular cases, they started off with wood that was relatively green. Right. And so That's then the wood shrunk a lot. Yeah. And then they and then they didn't go and 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 like the second year and seal things up. Right. At the at the same time, I've got a video of a guy that did a cordwood tiny house. Um, and uh, it looked like he, I mean, he really dried that wood, and, and he had great success with very little places to go back later and, and fill in between the, the wood and the cement. Um, and then you were mentioning to me earlier that you did a wall with Yonto Evans, so it was um, a, a cordwood wall, but instead of using something cement-ish, it was cob. Right. It's, we call it cobwood. Yonto and Linda stayed with us at Earthwood for a weekend. And we built a cordwood panel in our garage, actually, with 8-inch log ends. Eight inch, uh, the walls were 8 inches thick, so the log ends were 8 inches long. And Yonto and I agreed that in our climate here, not necessarily in, in Cobb Cottage country in Oregon, but here where we are, uh, it is important to insulate between the inner and outer cob joints. So we're replacing the mortar. Uh, we, we also use lime putty mortar, by the way, which may appeal to the natural builders that are listening in. Um, we use a Portland-based mortar, uh, which has uh, 35 years of experience behind it. We've done a lot of work with lime putty mortar, and with Yanto and Linda, we did this uh, cobwood, which is cordwood uh, log ends with cob as the mortar. And all work, and it all depends on what you've got. If you haven't got a good source of clay, this is not appropriate for you. You might consider one of the other mortars, the lime putty or the Portland-based mortar. Um, but certainly if you've got uh, a good quality clay and you use Yanto's uh, well-known recipes of making cob, the only difference we did with the cob in the cordwood building was that we chopped our straw to two-inch pieces. Instead of using the full uh, length of straw off of the bale, uh, I would, would take my rotary lawnmower and come down over a flake of straw and it would, it would mix into nice uh, two-inch pieces. That we used for the, uh, the cob that we used for cordwood mortar in, in the cobwood uh, style of wall, and then Linda finally came over the wall with a what she calls Finnish cob, which is has nothing to do with Finland, but it's just uh, <laughs> it's a cob with no straw in it, so that you can put a nice pointed finish on the uh, interior and exterior, so it looks like a, a, a natural mortar, but you don't see the straw sticking out of it anywhere. 
Okay. <clears throat> I and, and so I, so many different recipes, and of course, how, how many books do you have that just talk about cordwood? Like that's their primary well, focus. Is cordwood. Uh, gee, uh, I've done some books on the subject which are out of print. My first one was How to Build Log End Houses. It was a beautiful handwritten book, but if you dissolve it in a gallon of water, it will make a gallon of headache medicine. Uh, but over over four or five uh, different manifestations, uh, my last two cordwood books have, have been, uh, you know, I stand by really well. Uh, the complete book of cordwood house building uh, was published by Sterling about 20 years ago. It sold a lot of copies. That's kind of out of print now. You can still find it on Amazon. But the one we use is cordwood building the state of the art. And uh, I really stand by everything that's in there. Uh, in print, currently, we've got a book called Stoneview which is how to build a particular little octagon uh, guest house. It has a living roof. It's on a floating slab. It uses timber framing for the rest of us and cordwood masonry with both ordinary mortar and lime putty mortar in it. So if you want to build that little 20-foot diameter octagon with a living roof on it, this book has everything in it that you need to build that particular structure. All right. I want to pause for a moment to take a little bit of a bio break. Um, so just if you could just... So, Rob, what would be the big advantage to cordwood? Well, there are several, um, uh, what I call the five E advantages, and, and one is the economy of the thing. Uh, the walls are very low in cost. Uh, one is the ease of construction. Grandmothers and children and, and beavers can all, and, and actually all do build cordwood missionary structures. Uh, environmental uh, reasons, you can use wood which is unsuitable for uh, using for other purposes, um, for taking to the sawmill, you can use uh, fallen dead wood, fire killed wood, beetle killed wood. You can use it all. I've heard of people using um, uh, driftwood, both in the Mississippi River and on the west coast of the United States and Canada. Uh, what else? I'm thinking of trying to think of all my five E's. Uh, energy efficiency done correctly, and and, and not with uh, you know leaky, drafty walls, but done correctly. Energy efficiency is important, and um, I can't think of the fifth one, but it'll come to me. <laughs> so, so, so I, I know that it's. I should be governor I've seen many of, uh, of them in Texas, I guess. Was that out? I should be like the governor of Texas. Who couldn't remember the third thing? Oh right, that guy, the, the political. And <laughs> <laughs> turns to Ron Paul and says, uh, "What was the other thing? Yeah, like, what was the other like, thing? I'm going to help you. <laughs> <laughs> You're on your own, buddy. Okay. Dig your own grave. Yeah. Uh, so." But I, I think that an important thing is is that with cordwood you wanna you wanna dry the wood well, and then you're gonna build the wall, and even after the wall is built, over the next uh, like the following year, like one year later, yep. you probably want to go through and find out where little gaps have created themselves That's and, correct. and fill them in. That's correct. Now Jackie and I have always been careful to use logins where we haven't had to do major remedial. Uh, here, I'm living in a cordwood house right now. It's 31 years old, and we have done very little in the way of uh, sealing uh, shrinkage and logs because we started out with old split-seater fence rails that were, were completely dry 60 years before we got them, so they were really the perfect cordwood. Uh, we've had some large round log ends that have shrunk, and we put we find clear caulking. Uh, you can uh, stuff some backer rod around the, uh, uh, the shrinkage first, and then... Uh, using clear caulking, it, you, you don't see that because if you try to match the color of the mortar with a gray caulking or a white caulking, whatever, it always looks like it sticks like a sore thumb. But with clear caulking, you don't even see it. It just blends in. 
So that's worked very successfully for us. And then you've got on, on round logins, you've got something called the primary check. What happens is that uh, wood shrinks tangentially, so a number of checks will form as the round login is drying. Then one of those checks will win out and break through with a loud audible popping sound, and then that check gets bigger and bigger, and it actually closes off the other little checks. So you can get a quarter, even on a large login, you can get a half-inch primary check. That's pretty easy to stuff with insulation and then put the clear caulking over. So as you said, quite rightly, wait a year or two before doing that. You only want to do this once. Right. All right, let's move on to the book Mortgage Free. Now, I read Mortgage Free about 13 years ago, 15, no, it was it was 1999, however many years ago that was. And I think it was pretty new then. When did the book come out? Well, I think it came out back in the 80s, and I've got the second edition right now, which is 2008, but I think it came out around 1987, 90, something like that. All right, so it wasn't, it, what, it, when I first read it, it wasn't a new book, and it was in 1999. Yeah. I, um, at the point, I was doing the rat race thing, but I was also to the point where I was almost out of debt, and um, and I, I had a powerful interest in um, what I refer to as my cows and chickens plan. I wanted to get out of the uh, urban or suburban area and move on to land. And so I devoured the book. And um, uh, I don't recall, I, I think I picked it up over the years a couple more times and browsed it. And then I think it's probably spent 10 years gathering dust, and then this morning I, I browsed it once more to, to try and make sure. But let's, let's see if I can remember <coughs> the, the general premise of the book, because I didn't, I didn't exactly see this in just reading it now. Well, I kind of did. All right. Basically, step one, build a grub stake. Although, the, yeah. well, this is, in fact, I, I need to, I need to um, qualify what I'm about to say. This is the general thread of the book. Um, and, and then it's like, then the book goes into a lot of details about alternatives to the general thread. But the general thread is build a grub stake, buy bare land, build yourself a temporary shelter, something that might last 3 to 12 months. Um, and then while you're living in the temporary shelter and still working your day job, then you build a, a small house, a very small house, and, and preferably a house that um, is easy, has got a design that's going to be easy to renovate. And, easy, and then that's easy, the last easy step. Easy to add on to. You, you have to easy plan to add to on adding to. on at the design stage. So the, um, the, the small house is a high-quality, long-lasting house that you can add on to. And then, of course, the last stage is, is to add on to. And then um, through this process, you never have to take on a mortgage. And, and a big part of what your book starts off with is talking about things like, okay, uh, um, when you get a mortgage, then you, put, you end up putting out twice as much money or even three times as much right. money right. as um, the amount that you would put out with going down this road. Right. Um, then the book goes into an enormous amount of detail for all of these points because, and, and uh, with a lot of focus on how it'll be different for different people um, and different scenarios. And some people start off and they're in debt still. Some people start off and they've already saved up 20 grand. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and and some people their jobs aren't really bringing in much. And there's even some stuff if that I remember from like you know 13 years ago when I first read it. There's even some some tips on how to build your grub stake faster mm-hmm. and and things like that. Okay, right. so how far off am I? No, that's uh, that's all pretty good. The the temporary shelter doesn't need to last just three to twelve months. You might build, you might build a temporary shelter that later on becomes your your garden shed, your sauna. Uh, a guest house, so it's not necessarily a, a temporary structure. It's just your temporary shelter that you live in while you're uh, to get you on site, so that you can have the advantages of being on site while you're building your your actual home. But perhaps we should start with the, the grub stake and the land, and then work on to the temporary shelter. Okay. All right. I was what do you very, want to say? Very influenced by by two people. One was, of course, Henry David Thoreau. And and uh, the other was uh, the, the fellow who wrote uh, How to Survive Without a Salary, which was a very influential book on me. And I'm I'm having a senior moment and can't come up with his uh, his uh, the author at the moment. But it was called How to Survive Without a Salary. But uh, Henry Thoreau, I remember very clearly, the necessaries of life, according to old Henry, was food, fuel, shelter, and clothing. And uh, uh, so when you design your house, when you and and in the whole economic philosophy of that. Uh, is just so over, overpowering. Uh, when you're designing and building your house, you're also attending to food production and preservation, uh, uh, fuel, design a house which is uh, uh, small enough and, and, and built tight enough that you're going to cut down on your, on your fuel costs as well. So not only at the end of the day you're going to be mortgage-free, but you're going to cut way down on the next uh, large expenses of life, which is fuel and food, uh, I know cars, motor cars, a big one in this country. Uh, the clothing, Jackie and I have never spent very much money in clothing, but uh, I guess maybe Jack and, and Thurl said uh, beware of all enterprises involving new clothes anyway, so we don't worry a great deal about um, about clothing. So influenced by Henry Thurl, who, of course, uh, uh, built his own house in Walden Pond, mortgage-free, when he built it for $26, 12 and half cents, I think, something like that. Um on Ralph Waldo Emerson's property, incidentally, he doesn't make a point of that in his book. He called himself a squatter, but actually he was building on uh, on Waldo's property, which I cover that under the land chapter, <laughs> land strategies of the book too. Uh, so anyway, uh, I was greatly influenced by by Thoreau, and uh, as far as uh, accumulating the grub stake, and the word grub stake comes from back in prospector days, where a prospector uh, would. Uh, uh, he'd go to a financier who would give him grub in exchange for a stake in that claim, and that's where the word grub stake comes from. But we use the word as meaning the monies that you're going to use to perhaps buy your land and and build your and build your home. That's the grub stake. And as you mentioned quite rightly, people have started with nothing, or they've started with a you know pretty good grub stake. They've managed to put. Uh, Forty, uh, eighty thousand dollars aside, and it makes their their process a little bit easier in those cases. Uh, so accumulating grub stake is uh, can be done uh, fairly quickly by going on what uh, uh, the uh, how to survive a salary guy calls the uh, the materials fast by making a game of seeing how much money you can uh, save quickly. So that's the grub stake. <laughs> I mean, I think. I, I, I think we. I mean, one of the interviews that we've done on this show, wow, years ago, was with uh, Jacob Lund Fisker of Early Retirement Extreme, and in which case, 
he kind of and and then in the interview that I did with him, I kept referring to mortgage free, <laughs> you know, but the book and you, um, but he his book goes into a lot of detail of like okay, you can cut your expenses a little bit in these things, and and some people are willing to be more extreme than others. And and it's like well you know assuming all the people want to build a grub stake, um, some some people are willing to um, uh, live in a space. In fact, this was kind of like when we start getting into the temporary shelter kind of stuff. Um, we start getting into the space of like, do you need a shower? Um, and and it's like if if you can let that one go, then that's a certain kind of savings. Um, I know that I personally wouldn't, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit married to the shower um, concept, but uh, it, it seems like uh, um, some people, I mean, the first step, of course, is uh, getting rid of your television and your video games and things like that. Um, and then are you willing to live in a smaller space? Now, I, I recall from when I first read your book that you suggested that, or you at least told a story of some people doing that. They they each wanted to build a grub stake. And I think that like two or more families moved into a single house in order to to dramatically reduce their expenses. Yeah, I don't remember that story in particular. Um, the new edition has some other new stories about how people have uh, managed to put the grub stake together. I found that the the author is Charles Long, How to Survive Without a Salary, and. Um, he he talks about the that we live in a consumer economy as opposed to a conserver economy, um, and we, we call ourselves consumers. And we say that a few times out loud: consumer, consumer, we consume, consume. Uh, but we need to stop consuming and and, and conserving. And that's how we're going to lay by money. I mean, you need to have a source of income to, to play this game. Uh, but you can be you can be saving money on the income that you're taking in and putting it aside at an astounding rate, and it, some of that money could be put towards the actual uh, land itself. We bought our land on what's called land contract, and we put down I think it was 20% down, and we paid about I don't know uh, four more payments of 20% over the next four or five years, and uh, so we didn't get involved in mortgage at all by way of the land either. But we did enter into a land contract with the uh, private seller of the, of the property. Uh, but there's all sorts of uh, ways that you can uh, build on this materials fast and uh, and um, put a lot of money aside. I did this mortgage-free lecture in, at the uh, Energy Fair in, in Wisconsin about seven or eight years ago. And a young couple came, and they were in debt, and they came back three years later. They wrote, they wrote an article in the latest edition of Mortgage Free about how they'd gone from being like twenty or $30,000 in debt to being way ahead. And just applying the principles of mortgage-free on, on the, you know, getting out of debt and, and saving you money. We waste so much money on frivolous things in this country. True, uh, and I think um, a lot of it is is that um, I I know of people that are single individuals who live in a twenty-five hundred square foot home by themselves, and uh, and then you contrast that to like what Art Ludwig writes about can a 4,000 square foot home be green and then the idea of like you know if if you want to have this path or you want to travel this path and what does it take um, um, so 
Agreed. Agreed on so many different points. And it, and it does seem to me like the ultimate permaculture path is once you've gotten to the end of the path, your need for money is pretty much eliminated. Um, there are some luxury items that you might still want to have a couple hundred dollars a month in order to be able to go out and, and buy some things. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, once once you've taken care of all of your housing and all of your um, food needs um, and your fuel needs... Well, but then we can't improve upon Henry Thoreau on that. He says, when a man is warmed by the several modes which I've described, that is food fuel, food, fuel, shelter, and clothing, what does he want next? Surely not more warmth of the same kind as more and richer food, larger and more splendid houses, finer and more abundant clothing, more numerous and incessant and hotter fires and the like. When he's obtained these things which are necessary to life, there is another alternative than to obtain the superfluities, and that is adventure on life now, his vacation from humbler toil having commenced. How can you improve upon that? You become free. When you become mortgage-free, you, you're not only financially free, but you're free, as Southwest Airlines says, to move around the planet. And if you True. have any doubt, if you've got a mortgage and you have any doubt about who actually owns the house, just stop paying the mortgage for about three months and you'll find out who really owns the house. <laughs> All right, so... We've we've built the we, you know we, we've built the grub stake, and and now um, there's I mean there's quite a bit of content in your book about selecting land, yeah, um, and and how land that's that's uh, closer to certain areas is so much more expensive yes. than land yes. in other areas, yes. um, and uh, uh, I think I think the taste for land is is going to vary. I mean I could probably fill four hours talking about what land to look for and why and trying to keep it inexpensive things of that nature. I mean, if you're, if you're willing to spend $5 million for a piece of land, then, you know, you don't have to be too particular. I suppose you probably get exactly a beautiful piece right out of the chute. But it's like, if you're trying to think, okay, I don't want to spend more than $60,000 on a piece of land, then, you know, now let's, 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 you know, start searching Keep and and uh, um, keep a sharp eye out and what to look for and well, stuff like that. Well, a lot of people don't even consider the possibility of what's called uh, marginal land. It might be a clear-cut forest. It might be a reclaimed land. You might uh, our Earthwood Building School and our house and building school here is built in a two-acre gravel pit, and we have now returned. You're going to love this permaculture-wise. We've taken these two acres of moonscape where nothing grew, and now after 30 years, we've got this wonderful living gardens and and everything, uh, and you would know that it was a gravel pit. We've taken two acres of land which man destroyed and returned it to living, growing, uh, oxygenating production again. So that's, that was very, in fact, that, this land cost us nothing. That's another story. But uh, <laughs> you, you can get uh, fire-killed land and say, oh, gee, who wants to live there? But in 20 years, you've made a huge impact on that land and, and to the planet for, for the better. And in the meantime, the land's cost you practically nothing. So don't discount uh, marginal land. Uh, people always want to go and punt their house and the beautiful view over the mountains and the lake and this kind of thing. They're going to pay for that. Plus, they're spoiling the view. Speaking of uh, getting land for nothing, then um, our mutual friend has land that he's offering, not exactly for nothing, but it, you know, no dollars involved. Right. He wants people to come and, in on this community. Right, 
Right, and and he's he's effectively looking for one to nine heirs. He's already divided his land into nine pieces, and um, he's and, and so basically, it's kind of like have several people come to live the land, and because we're talking about Mike Ayler, of course, and um, he's got the original fifty dollar underground house, and he's got his ridgetop house, and then there's the fifteen dollar uh, earth berm house. And uh, um, so he's got all these structures that are currently sitting empty, and and it's kind of like you know, is his position is something like surely there's somebody or several somebodies who would be willing to come to the land, do a certain amount of labor just to you know be fair, um, to be there kind of a thing, and and then as time passes, then he'll select somebody or several somebodies to effectively be his heir to inherit the land when he dies. Mm-hmm. He's he's worried that that um, he'll die at some point, and he's not selected somebody, and and then this land just goes to anybody, and then all the th- all the things that he's worked on all this time will just be gone. Mm-hmm. They won't be around anymore. Yep. So it seems like. That there would surely be several people that would. If, I mean, even if he's not going to say, "And I might give you land," it seems like even if that's not on the table, which it is. But if it's not, it seems like there'd be gobs of people that'd be like, "What? I get to go and live in the fifty-dollar house and hang out with Mike Ayler." I mean, it seems like if nothing else, surely there are people that'd be like, "I will totally move there and be part of that." So. Anyway, I've, I've, we've got a Mike started a thread out at permies.com where uh, he's given instructions for people that are interested in coming out to possibly come out. So um, uh, there's a lot of discussion there about the deal and uh, what he's looking for and stuff like that. Well, but, so, uh, the things like that is always good, of course, to um, go out and, and meet and try try for uh, a week or a month. But, I have a friend in the uh, megalithics line who uh, fancies himself the Arch Druid of Cornwall, and he'll marry you at his place, who will hold on the stone, you put your hands through this uh, old stone, and he'll marry you for a week or a month, whatever you like, and try it out. And if, if it works out good for a week or a month, he'll, you know, he'll give you a longer uh, wedding contract. And that's the kind of thing that people might consider doing when they want to uh, uh, fall with a curmudgeon like uh, Mike Ayler, make sure that everybody's compatible with each other and... Uh, and it works out well, that's great. And, and it's, it's good advice in, in so many facets of life to try. Build a small house before you build a big house. So I guess my point is the free land thing, there are many, because I know of one other permaculture guide that has seven acres, and <coughs> he's in the exact same boat. And, and we're going to get some information up on his stuff on permies really soon now. But I know that I've had five... I think maybe six different offers from people where they would give me free land to come and and do what I do. Just I'll give it to you. You just do your permaculture thing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, and it it happens. And there's there are scenarios for well, it for free might, land. You might have an aunt Minnie who's willing to uh, what uh, twenty acres of her. She's getting long in the tooth, and she's willing to. Uh, uh, part with a 20-acre piece or 10-acre piece somewhere off of her property, you know. And uh, I tell you, the last place that you want to find property is at real estate agents, uh, because all the, the the compounded prices that go with uh, selling something that way, it can give you a good uh, comparative value of properties around the country. 
But uh, ultimately, once you find an area that suits you and suits the way of life you want to uh, uh, pursue, best thing to do is knock on doors. That's how we found our property at Earthwood. We liked to look at the land uh, along where we were, and we, and we noticed that most of it was owned by this Philo McKinney. So then we came to a mailbox that said McKinney. So we knocked on his door, and uh, he said, no, I don't want to sell any land, but old Tom Levarnley up on Murder Hill, he's got land for sale. And so, again, cultivating coincidences, uh, we get in touch with Tom Levarnley. He just loves to show people land. He's not a real estate guy. He just likes to, you know, buy and sell land. And uh, he sold us this property on land contract. But we had another six or seven families join in with us, uh, and we bought, all told, about 244 acres up here in the Tar Hill, um, and the story's in mortgage-free. And um, so there was some advantage in, in buying in, in bulk that way. The way we ended up with the Earthwood property for free was that uh, uh, we were the only ones that could make the payment on this last uh, 19 acres that was left over. So we started making payments on it, and then another fellow, uh, he decided he'd like to homestead up here. So um, he started, we sold him our piece on the land contract, but he fell behind in his payments. And he said, look, Pat, if, if you beat us to six acres where the gravel pit is, we'll write you a satisfaction of mortgage. He says, well, that sounds good. So we, uh, we wrote him a satisfaction of mortgage. Now he was home free, plus we had, we had this land for free, the six acres. It's amazing how things can work out. Yeah. Well, you got to so, you extend yourself in life. Uh, boy, uh, th- this is the thing between introverts and extroverts in probability theory. Uh, the more extensions that you send out into the world, uh, the greater the probability that some of them are going to uh, uh, come to fruition. So, so basically, by posting out at permies.com, Saying I'm looking for land and I want to know what my options are, it's it's entirely plausible that something could come of it. Whereas if you don't post anywhere and you don't knock on a door and you don't do any right. of these things, right. then it's definitely not going to happen. Right. So every everything every time you try something, it improves your odds a little bit better. Well, in the Bible it says, "Ask and you shall receive." Well, the obverse of that is, "Don't ask, nobody's going to give you nothing." <laughs> All right. The next step is the temporary shelter. And so I'm kind of thinking like uh when you when you have a temporary shelter, maybe it would be good to start uh building your temporary shelter in April or May. Um so that way uh you can live in your temporary shelter and then maybe your house will be ready for you come fall. Right. Right. That's the, that's the classic case right there. Some of the people on the hill here, their temporary shelter was a tent. They lived in a tent while they built uh, one uh, family that's in the book, the, the Lights. They lived in a tent while they built the Poplar Palace. It was a log home made out of poplar logs. And um, so that was their temporary shelter. There, there are, uh, besides getting on the property and knowing where the sun rises and sets and, and being close to the work site, uh, the other advantage is if you've never built anything before, uh, when you when you build something, no matter how small it is, 10 by 15 feet, and you're actually living in there, you're equal with any other contractor, builder, beaver, bandicoot on the planet living in the place that you've built yourself. And after that, it's just a matter of degree. It's not a matter of kind. You've already proven to yourself you can build something that you can live in. And after that, it's just a, a matter of degree. 
And we keep talking about temporary shelter, but it's not necessarily a temporary structure. It could become later your sauna. Your, uh, in fact, that's what the, the Finns did in, in Wisconsin and Michigan. They'd build their sauna first. They'd move into the sauna, build their house, and by the time the house was finished, they were really dirty, so they needed to fire up the sauna and get clean. Ah. <clears throat> so, um... It could, yeah, it could be a variety of things. I, I do know, I do have a note here that one of the things that a temporary shelter is not, and I, and I, this is something I don't remember from reading it before, but I, I caught sight of it when browsing through the book um, this morning, and that is n- not an RV. Well, I, I've known people who have brought in a Junko mobile home and uh, lived in there and has been built and then got rid of it at the end of it. Uh, an RV, I've never you know, quite thought of that as a kind of environmentally sound thing to do. But I suppose if you had an RV, you could park it on the property, build your house, and then get rid of it. But I don't really cover that in my book, <laughs> the RV. Okay. Um, yeah, I saw mobile home, and I was assuming that it meant RV. I was browsing, just browsing. Yeah, this morning. I, ha- I have known people who have uh, uh, lived in a mobile home on a temporary basis instead of building a temporary shelter. They, they lose, however, the advantage of making a $500 mistake on the temporary shelter instead of a $5,000 mistake later on their, on their home. There's a certain building experience, especially if you've never built anything before. Our temporary shelter that Jackie and I built, we were helped by Tom LaVarnway, who we bought the, our property from, Tom was a builder. He built a lot of homes in Danamora, New York, about 90 homes. And just out of the goodness of his heart, he was in his 70s. He came over and helped us build a 12 by 16 foot, 2 by 4 frame shed. cost us $350. And we lived in that for, for seven months. And this was the first thing Jackie and I had actually uh, built from scratch ourselves. And we lived there while we built Log End Cottage, our first home. And then uh, we moved into it. And the temporary shelter became a very useful garden shed after that. So um, the the reason why I bring up the thing about RV, which would be effectively the same as mobile homes and, and in many ways, it leads me back to what Nearing and Nearing wrote in A Good Life, and they gave up on on stick frame shelters um, in favor of uh, stone Yeah, home. wow. Well, talk about labor intensive. Yeah. They, yeah. Weren't, they weren't afraid to work with Nearings. But their, their position, which I thought was really... A, a good point is that if you've got a if you've got a stick framed home, a traditional house, <clears throat> and it's old, then um, the amount of time that you have to put into keeping it standing can add up to be something rather significant. And and an older home, an older stick frame home, is kind of perpetually trying to become a compost pile, and you're trying to keep it propped up and keep it going. And it's and it's a it's a it's a time sink. Um, oh, yeah. And I kind of feel like with the comments that you made about mobile homes was very similar. Like, these things are not designed to stand the test of time. Oh, no, no, no. They're, they're a fire trap. They're an environmental disaster. Um, they're going to end up in a landfill eventually. It's nice. Uh, any home we design and build should be a long-term compost heap. Uh, ultimately, all the house should recede back into the landscape from which it sprung. Uh, but obviously you want to get some mileage out. I think if uh, uh, Crockers Cottages in the west coast of Scotland are still being lived in after 500 years, but eventually they're just going to it's just gonna become a mound, as there's so many in the north of Scotland. You see these mounds which people used to live in once upon a time, 
but now they've retreated gracefully into the landscape. So that should be part of using indigenous materials that are, are going to just uh, give themselves back up to the earth is not a bad plan. When we talk about a temporary shelter, and then we talk about a small house, and and this is a point in time where I, I want to, I mean, and granted, in the book Mortgage Free, you go into a lot of different designs, and and of course you've already mentioned the idea of like you you build a structure which could be used for um, a, a dozen different things after you move into your small house, but but this is the area where I want to talk about Mike Ayler's designs, um, and so you of course are very familiar with Mike Ayler's designs, yeah. um, and and. Uh, um, I know that several of your books, um, uh, you know, give a shout out to Mike. Uh, I know that that your uh, underground design is different from Mike's. Yes, it is. And um, and so, uh, are there reasons why you don't? I mean, would you advocate Ayler's designs? Um, I think Mike is talking about ultra low cost survival shelter. And uh, the type of earth sheltering housing that we're doing here at Earthwood is somewhere between that and what Malcolm Wells was doing, and you know, uh, architect designed, uh, you know, con- you know, poured concrete uh, uh, shelters. What we're accenting at Earthwood are techniques that owner builders can do themselves, such as surface bonded concrete blocks, uh, plank and post and beam, plank and beam roofing. Uh, commonly available waterproofing membranes and drainage material. Uh, Mike is talking about uh, basically his PSP system, the post-shoring and polyethylene, uh, ultra-low cost. Um, don't know if he's completely solved the, the, the post being into the ground yet. Uh, he's tried a number of things on that. I don't agree with all of uh, Mike's principles. I respect them. He doesn't agree with all of mine, and we have a we have a very uh, a uh, nice relationship that way. Uh, we don't have to agree with each other and everything. We're both uh, supplying information to people who can use it in their, in their different uh, uh, lifestyles. So uh, I won't badmouth them, and I don't think he'll badmouth me either. But we are talking about uh, a different, I think, uh, 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 degree of longevity um, and things of that nature. Um, but basically, uh, I love his book. Uh, the earthen floor, for example, is one of the best things in it. I'm a little, he's tried to convince me of the uphill patio. I'm not quite certain of that one yet. Uh, but, uh, again, uh, it, it, the world's big enough for us to uh, take different points of view on some things. Right, right. So um, I, I've got a podcast, um, probably about, uh, I don't know, 25 podcasts back, where um, it's with Glenn Kongeser. And uh, he's um, has an Ehler structure, uh, which was really big, um, and it was in California, uh, and it uh, uh, and it was also something where uh, he would he started with something smaller, and then he added on and added on and added on and added on, and and, and so that's kind of so I'm, I'm looking at this guy's house, and I'm kind of thinking like it. it uh, it fits with the idea of the the small house, which you then add on to. Um, yeah, and, and I'm I'm also. Go ahead. It's well. It's, I can't emphasize enough how important it is if you if you try to just build something you can afford to move into, but you ultimately want something bigger. Have it figured out at the design stage. How are you going to add on to it? Because there are certain houses 
They're just very, very difficult to add on to. For example, a roundhouse. A roundhouse is difficult to add on to. I live in a roundhouse. <laughs> I love roundhouses. It's not easy to add on to. Uh, a lot of times you see people building frame houses, and they add on to the at the at the base of the pitch of the roof with these with these shallow shed roofs. And in a couple of years, the things collapse under the snow load. That wasn't thought carefully at the design stage about how to add on to. You should be adding on to the gable end, not to the not to the bottom of the pitch of the roof. So I, I spend quite a bit of time uh, uh, in the book. Uh, if people want, uh, if they want to move into something because they want to be mortgage-free, that's great. But if they want something bigger, jolly well know how you're going to do it later on down the pike. Okay. All right. Um, I want to I want to take a moment to talk about what I'm going to refer to as um, a DIY scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, you're probably not familiar with this other – I've got this thing I call the eco-scale, the Wheaton eco-scale. And the idea is, is that there are – Six billion people at level zero. Mm-hmm. There's um, one billion people at level one. There's a hundred million at level two. Uh, Ten million at level three, etc. Yeah. And then you get to one person at level ten. Um, and so this, this, I want to say something like, okay, let's do something similar. Only it's going to be a, a DIY scale. And at level zero, for this DIY scale, are people that are just Never going to do anything DIY. Right, right. Um, they're not going to touch a hammer. They're mm. they're they don't they don't know the difference between pliers and a screwdriver. Yeah, they probably um, shouldn't then in that case. And <laughs> um, and then at at level uh, at level one, you're going to have um, uh, people that um, are interested in DIY. Um, how, however, they don't really have the skills yet. Uh, and and so you you might throw in Dagwood Bumstead, who uh, in the in the comic he is um, he seems to uh, once a year build a birdhouse which no respectable bird would live in, and it's got nails sticking out of it, and it doesn't look anything like a birdhouse. Um, so some, somehow he wants to do DIY, but he's just he's missing an ingredient. <laughs> um, and then we start moving up the scale, and we've got people that are like, "Oh, you, you need me to weld that for you? No problem." And yeah. uh, and then finally you get up to the very end of the scale, where you've got the people that are so far beyond their innovating new ways of building, and they're um, such as yourself writing books and teaching others en masse how to do these alternative forms of building. So well, I, don't, I don't do everything myself either. I'll get help with things that I don't feel comfortable about. You know, it might be electrical or whatever it might be. Um, I don't uh, pretend to be the, the master of every part of the building uh, process, but I specialize in, in certain building techniques. And um, I guess the, the key is is that to go down the mortgage-free road, I think that there is some assumption that you'd have some sort of, um, uh, you know, you would be at least level one on DIY. And you said something which I think is really, really important. Well, you said two things that were really important. One had to do with, actually, the people that are at level zero, they'll still find some value in this book. It's just that they're not going to do the, the do-it-yourself parts. Right. But just the idea, like just taking how the mortgage-free system works and putting it in their head will probably make them far more eco, far more powerful in their, in their decisions they're going to make. Yep. Um, the other thing that you mentioned is something that I've kept with me since college that I call that that when I first heard about it, 
uh, was called Thompson's Rule for First-Time Telescope Makers. And uh, that is that it's faster to build a 4-inch mirror and then a 6-inch mirror than it is to build a 6-inch mirror. And and you said something very similar to that, and you said, the thing you got to do is you got to build something terrible and be okay with that. Be totally cool with the first one's going to be terrible. And then the experience that you gain from building the first one gives you the skills to build a good second one. Well, I don't know about terrible. <laughs> it shouldn't be terrible. You know, Jack Henstridge, the late great cordwood advocate, cordwood masonry advocate, said, build a model. He says, if you can't build the model, for God's sake, don't try to, don't try to build the house. The model teaches you all sorts of things about the jointing of the house, if you're building a timber frame or whatever. Build a model first, Jack, and I think that's a good uh, piece of advice. And the next step from that is the temporary shelter. Uh, and build that. It doesn't have to be terrible. It doesn't have to, it's not going to be perfect. But uh, you're going to learn a lot uh, to prevent it from being terrible. Uh, and as I said before, you might make a, a mistake that costs you $500 there, but that's on the roof or something that saves you a $5,000 mistake later on in your house itself. So DIY Level 1 people, I think, I think that uh, are going to, DIY Level 1 and above, are going to do great with this book, Mortgage Free. And um, uh, it sounds like people that are DIY level zero are going to find value in it, but they probably aren't going to do the <coughs> probably aren't going to do the building. Yep. Fair enough. Amen to that. So now uh, the the next the end, the next thing I've got lined out here is that um, there's some difference when building things rural versus urban. Yep. Is that a question? <laughs> I, I guess. I, it seems like we talked about it earlier, and I made a note. Ooh, yeah, that's a yeah, good I point. In, a good topic. I think to, for full disclosure, I think it must be said that mortgage-free is going to do people a lot more good in uh, rural areas than in urban areas because it requires a piece of land to build on. You mentioned uh, in our pre-discussion about you know the vagaries of building and planning regulations. It could be a problem in the city where out in the country you can maybe uh, get out to where it's less of a problem. So, you know, I, I, in fairness, I think the book is uh, more appropriate to people who want to live a rural as opposed to an urban lifestyle. I, I agree. I agree. I, I, I think part of it is – now, granted, I one good thing to throw in here is that um, Ianto Evans – uh, and, and I'm sure it's still going on at Cobbville uh, that they have a workshop there. Um, I don't know this for sure, but I would, I would guess that they do, where you come in for a weekend and you learn how to build a, a Cobb house. Well, at least you learn and, how to build the Cobb wall. Whether he covers well, all the – does he cover the entire framing and the roof and all, how to put the roof on and all that stuff in a weekend? I don't know. I, I think if the um, Cobb is being similar to our corded workshops, where in three days we can teach you to build a cordwood wall, but we can't teach you to build the entire house in three days because you get all your foundation, your your framing, your your rafters, your your, uh, your plumbing, your electric. We, don't, we can't cover all that in three days. But what we can do is teach somebody to build a corded wall. And I would think that Yanto and Linda are probably teaching somebody to build a Cobb wall in, in, in two or three days. I'm guessing here. Um, I haven't attended one of his workshops, but um, the whole house thing is, is, uh, is quite a thing. It is quite a and thing. By the way, and while, while it occurs to me, this is why I think it's so important 
to uh, consider doing the timber frame first, getting the roof on before you start doing any cordwood or any cob. Work on, on the umbrella protection of the roof in place as opposed to having to build the, the cordwood or cob wall and being at the mercy of the elements before you can put your roof on. No, get the post and beam framework up, get your roof on, and work under the umbrella protection of, of that. So um, I do know of people that have gone to Cobbville and they've lived at Cobbville for several months. Um, and they just enjoy it so much there that they just, you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the arrangement is, but I, it seems to me like most people who go there, they pay for a workshop or a, a long-term workshop. But I, I'm going to, I'm going to, it seems like, because that was kind of the amazing thing in a weekend and two days. And, and you're right. I, I have a certain level of skepticism myself about that. At the same time, um, working with Cobb is really easy. Yeah, it is. It's labor. It's not cordwood. It's labor intensive, but you know, it's not rocket science. Right, right. It's just it takes a long, long time. And then I saw a DVD, which um, kind of featured this. And and if I recall correctly, you watch the DVD, and it's like, yes, I went to a weekend workshop uh, at Cobbville on building a Cobb house. And then I've never built anything before in my life, and I came home, and in my backyard, I built a Cobb house. And it sounded like it was an urban lot. So there's a regular house, and there's a backyard. And in the backyard, this guy built a small Cobb house, which took a long time, and but but he did. He He built it. And then he moved into it, right. and then could rent out the whole house. Well, that's pretty good. He, he may have had to run under the radar of the local uh, building or planning people, or or he may have gotten permission. Right. That kind of gets into this whole other complicated thing. But uh, of course, a lot of Yanta's designs are for pretty tiny tiny houses. Yeah. So it it might have you know met that minimum criteria of like, oh, you don't need a permit if it's that small. Right. In New York, um, it's uh, 100 square feet. You don't have to uh, have a permit for 100 square feet. So our hermit's hut, for example, is 8 by 8. That's the outside dimension. So it's 64 square feet of a footprint. But the inside dimensions is 6 foot six by 6 foot 6 with the 8-inch cordwood walls. So um, what's that, about 40 square feet in all. Uh, the door has to open out because there isn't room for it to open in. So we call it the hermit's uh, hut because one hermit, or if she's female, it'll be a hermit, uh, can stay there for a few days during our uh, during our workshops. So it's a nice, comfortable little place. It's only six foot six square on the inside. I I never thought about a hermit versus a hermit. Um, I I didn't realize that our culture was that rich that we had that built into the language. I I and now that I think about it, I've never thought of a woman being a hermit. Um, but think, good, yeah, I, I a hermit. Tend, I tend to invent a lot of words, and uh, that may be one of my invented words, hermit. <laughs> another well, one, I like that another word. Another one I take responsibility for is storing coolth. Coolth is, <laughs> cool is heat at a lower temperature. Just as we can store heat in a masonry stove or a thermal mass, we can also store coolth. <laughs> I haven't seen the word anywhere else except in my writings. Right, and and uh, um, I, I suppose physicists 
will, will, will it will drive them insane. But that's kind of part of the comedy. <laughs> I've stored cool. Well, no, you didn't. It's all heat. It's all heat, just at different temperatures. Exactly. Exactly. And then you know it will absorb heat. You you've created rather than cool, rather than storing cool, you've created a heat absorber, a heat sink of of sorts. Well, a nice a nice block is a cool storage thing. <laughs> I, I like it. I know what you're saying. I know what you're talking about. <coughs> but the but my favorite part is that the people that want to be anal about what heat is or or whatever then or what cool is, then then they'll freak out. You can't have you can't store cools, and and then it just seems funny to me, and I just I just find pleasure in watching them squirm. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, the last the last. A tidbit that I have on mortgage free is the concept of the tiny house, and and it's just uh, I, I'm just throwing that in there because there's been a lot of people, a lot of interest lately in uh, tiny houses, and I, I think effectively that's what you have when you have your small house, which is designed in such a way that you can add on to it, and yeah. and you yeah. live rather humbly in a tiny house, um, but later you could expand on it. But a, a lot of people find that uh, they might build their small house and you can say, you know what? I don't have a mortgage. I could quit my job now, and um, you know I'm living in my tiny house. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, if I expand, that'll cost money, which means I'll have to like you know, work and stuff. Um, maybe I'll just stay here. Well, <laughs> maybe this I'm, is good. I'm sure you're aware that since the Second World War, our houses have just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And in the second edition of Mortgage Free, the one that you don't have, I actually did some research on this and quoted the square footage figures over the, over the years, how they've gotten bigger, 700, 2,000, they've been getting bigger and bigger. Now they've kind of peaked out, and I think they might even, uh, new houses might even be a little smaller than they were a few years ago because of the economic situation. But, uh, you know, the typical American wants to have a, a bedroom for every kid, so they get their own, they get their master bedroom, they get a bedroom for every kid, and then they get the ubiquitous guest bedroom for somebody who might stay there eight days of the year. Uh, I say, you know, put them on a fold-out couch. That way they won't stay too long, and there's one less room you have to build in the house. <laughs> um, yeah, so we we can um, we can build much smaller, and uh, American houses are way bigger than than uh, other countries, uh, even even uh, developed uh, countries. I don't know. I don't know about Canada. They might be quite similar to America, but uh, in other parts of the world, they don't build these huge houses that we do here. And of course, you got to pay for whatever you build, and. Uh, uh, you're not going to be mortgage-free building more than you can afford. All true. We, All true. Uh, we have a little summer camp, I hate to tell you, and it's a 600 square feet. It's, it's a round, two-story, quarter masonry building. It's 300 square feet on each each floor, and we just love it. It's so cozy. We just uh, feel like uh, it just it, the house fits us beautifully. It's just 300 square feet on each floor. You get two small bedrooms yeah, I, and a bathroom downstairs, and an open plan living kitchen uh, living area upstairs, and it's just it's our little piece of paradise. It's one quarter of the of our, uh, Earthwood home. Mind you, our Earthwood home is also a place of our business. We have our classroom here. We teach, you know, our whole building school is based at Earthwood, so it's both a, a business and a home. And and I think that's one thing when we when we go back to talking about Cobb, it's so time intensive to build a cob home 
that I think that might be a contributing factor on why so many of the homes that are at Cobbville are so small. Yes. Uh, by the way, while we're on this subject, both with cordwood and with cob, they have very thick walls, and it's very important to know how much space you're devoting to the thickness of the walls in your house. And so what this means is when you get to a very small house and you get these very thick walls, cob or cordwood, you're tying up a high percentage of your footprint in the thickness of the walls. And people don't right. realize that because most people are living in a 2x4, 2x6 stick frame house where the, where the footprint caught up in the walls is minimal compared to the total area of the building. But in our house, we have 400 square feet of our footprint is caught up in wall thickness. And that includes the internal walls? No, that's just the 16-inch thick cordwood walls. Wow. Now, have you, have you done internal walls with cordwood? Uh, I have not. I have seen two occasions of that, one in Georgia and one an old house, an old cordwood house that was built in Friendship, Wisconsin, back in 1947 by a German immigrant. And all the walls were cordwood, the internal walls. And then uh, Sam Feltz down in Adel, Georgia, built a round cordwood house years ago, and Jackie and I visited it, and all his internal walls were cordwood as well. Uh, one of the problems with cordwood masonry is that it's a light sucker. And uh, it absorbs it, it absorbs light, and so the house, the two houses that I've seen that have been all cordwood, internal and external walls, have been quite dark. Um, Malcolm Wells, the underground house builder, used to say that our our greatest energy saving, our cheapest energy saving device is a gallon of white paint, because you have light colored walls, you use less less electricity on lighting, etc. Uh, and it's true that cordwood and stone are both light suckers. So we use uh, uh, bright white internal walls, and electric are in those internal walls, and they reflect light back onto the cordwood wall. But the houses, like the room I'm sitting in, in, in where I'm talking to you right now, is earth-sheltered up about six feet up the wall, and then it's cordwood masonry above that. And I'm looking at the wall as I'm speaking to you, and the cordwood wall is dark, and the surface-bonded uh, concrete block wall with a coat of white paint on it is nice and bright and lights up the whole room. But if this wall was all cordwood, this room would be very much darker. No, I'm not. I'm not bad mouthing cordwood here. I love cordwood. Um, we use the lightest mortar we can. We try to use light colored logins. But like like with stonework, uh, it's it's a light sucker. Something it's just something to dwell on. So, so no, <clears throat> I, I I don't really endorse uh, internal cordwood walls. It's so much faster to just build an ordinary. Uh, uh, a stick, stick wall with uh, a sheet rock and textured paint on it or something like that. You can run your electric easily through that. Now you can you can run electric to a corded wall too. Uh, our son is our 26 year old son is building a corded house with a geodesic dome on top of it right now, right next to us on our earthward property. And his downstairs walls are 16 inch cordwood, and his upstairs is the uh, a geodesic dome that we recycle. And um, the dome is very bright and white, of course, because the internal walls are are sheetrock. But uh, the downstairs portion is all cordwood, and you have to be careful about letting plenty of light in, and your internal walls have got to reflect light back onto that. Anyway, I don't want to beat a dead horse on this one. All right. I understood. Understood. I, I was just kind of curious what you did for well, – now I know. Internal walls. You like It's like I'm, I'm, the question's burning in me, and you knew the question. You read my mind. Speaking of uh, <clears throat> other, other bits and bobs, one of them is earthen floor, and – 
I know that uh, recently I've seen a couple of earthen floors that were different. One of the things that is a downside that I thought was with earthen floor is that they can be very time-consuming to put in. Well, they are. And and uh, and so at at this one house that I visited uh, in California, that I was just mentioning a little bit ago, a uh, Glenn Congeezer's house. Um, he did something where he had dirt, and he um, and it, and it wasn't very much of his house, but in a couple of different spots, including stairs, he had some. The he had an uphill patio, and then he put stairs into it to go above the uphill patio, and it was covered like a greenhouse, and um, it was just the dirt. But he said he put in. Um, uh, um, linseed oil. Yeah, yeah. He said all, all all I did was is push a little linseed oil into the dirt. Yeah, well, and then I let it sit. There's a series of there's different layers that go into it, and one of the best places you'll get information on this is in Yanto's book, uh, the uh, hand sculpted uh, house. The hand sculpted house, at chapter fifteen, is a wonderful chapter about the earthen floor. And Rowan, our son who lives in Leadville, Colorado, built an earth sheltered house in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, with a wonderful. Uh, earthen floor in it, and he says it was the most uh, intensive labor thing he's ever done in his life, and he's a hard worker as well. And um, uh, he it came out very, very well. And Jackie and I have visited out there, we'll be going out there again in August. And um, he wrote an article in Back Home Magazine about the, the building of this earthen floor, and he got a lot of his information from Yanto's Chapter 15, but he also did other research too on it. But he says, wow, he says uh, he had to get a lot of friends to come and help him put it down. There's just a lot of manual work that goes into the earth and floor. I suppose it's like a little bit like cod in that respect, except that there are different right. there are different layers. You've got your four or five inch base layer, then you've got a, a one inch air which a layer which is done differently with different materials, and then there's finally the finished layer, which is where the linseed oil goes into it. Or he used a, he didn't use linseed oil. He might have used a beeswax oil or something. You want to be very careful with linseed oil because some people are chemically sensitive to linseed oil. And that's why we don't uniformly recommend it as the inner surface of a corded wall either, because for most people it's going to be okay. But maybe I'm guessing here one in ten or one in twenty people might find it untenable to live in the in the house of linseed oil. Interesting. Well, and and it kind of leads me to thinking about <clears throat> as we as we talk about it, we've got these these two different re, you know reports on on floors. It's like we've got the temporary shelter. And and the small house. So as a floor and a temporary shelter, I know, like, for example, Mike Ayler likes to put down a layer of the black plastic and, and then the put carpet. a carpet on that. Right. Um, and uh, But I kind of wonder about, like, this this one style. And I've also heard of people using beeswax. Yeah, I which think that's I what think. Rowan did. Okay, okay. Um, and And then it's like, oh, I'll just take the dirt that's there mix in some linseed oil or beeswax or something similar and then you've got a pretty rough floor that's an acceptable floor. Rowan's floor Whereas is you not, just left it as dirt. Not rough. It's not rough at all. You can as Mike says in his fifty dollar and up uh, uh book, you can you, he talks about houses built down that he saw when he was down in Mexico where you could drop a, a fresh egg on the floor and just and, and, and clean it up right off the floor. That's how you know, um, talking about Mexican ladies rubbing linseed oil in and, and building up a a really uh, smooth, uh, clean floor. 
in Rome's floors like that. And I know another one down in Cortez, Colorado. A guy's got a beautiful home, an expensive home with an earthen floor on it. And once again, um, you could you could spill something out and clean it right up off of it, no problem at all. Right, right. I mean, I've seen some very beautiful earthen floors, and I'm kind of thinking like maybe one is a is a short term floor or or it's a it's could be a long term floor but it's it's a kind of a, a bit more of a rough look to it and then the other is like what your son did which is a rather amazing floor and but it's a little bit more labor intensive it is the devil is in the details and i'm not qualified to tell you how to build a, uh, an earthen floor but my son could tell okay. you all right well i you know so now we've we've mentioned something maybe we'll get a lot more feedback on earthen floors in the forums at permies all right, um, we've got a few, a couple of uh, uh, little things to tidy up on. One is is that you've got some workshops coming up. Um, right. You want to talk about those? Sure. Uh, we've got a workshop coming up uh, very soon, actually, in a place called Marcellus, Michigan. It's just below Kalamazoo, very close to Kalamazoo. And it's a three-day quartered workshop, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, May 10th to the 12th. And we have space uh, for it. Uh, and people can go for any of our workshops to Cordwood Masonry, CordwoodMasonry.com is the website for Earthwood Building School, so it tells about all our workshops. And we have three workshops here in New York in May, July, and late August. But um, we have two away workshops this year, and one is the one I mentioned in Marcellus, Michigan, May 10th to the 12th. And the other is in Mondovi, Wisconsin, and this is near Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And it's June 25th to the 29th. Why is it a five-day workshop instead of three? Because the first two days is timber framing for the rest of us, and it's the only timber framing for the rest of us workshop we're doing this year, 2013. So the first two days, we assemble the framework of our six-poster design, which makes a great temporary shelter. It makes a great sauna. makes a great guest house or garden shed. We'll actually put every, all the layers on for the living roof during those first two days. And then the last three days of the workshop are the cordwood masonry. So that's June 25th to the 29th in Mondovi, Wisconsin. And again, uh, people can go to our, our workshop page at cordwoodmasonry.com for descriptions of these workshops, and they can go to the registration page to actually register. You can use PayPal or any, any major credit card to register. And we send out an information package, and we send out the textbooks. So for the uh, Wisconsin one, you can get timber framing for the rest of us and cordwood masonry uh, textbooks. And in Marcellus, Michigan, it would just be the uh, cordwood building, the state-of-the-art textbook for that one. And, and cordwoodmasonry.com, that's your website, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, okay. You can search Earthwood and, Building uh, School. If you search Earthwood Building School, you'll come to it right away. Okay. But the URL is Cordwood Masonry, and there's only one A in Masonry. Half the people in the world spell Masonry with two A's, but there's only one in it. Uh, .com. You hear people say I, I, Masonry. Masonry. I was Masonary. trying to think, like, where does the second it's, name go? It's, it, it's like scratching fingernails on a blackboard to me when I hear that. <laughs> Careful, you're going to tempt me to start putting an A in it. No. All right, so... so those uh, who can't Mason pronounce it right can't spell it either, and that's why they have trouble finding yeah. it. There, oh, there you go. There you go. And and finally, the last note is is that uh, there's a Cordwood conference coming up. Well, you're the, this is uh, this is big news right here. This is the first time we've mentioned this. Uh, it hasn't even appeared on their website yet. So now I'm going to have to click like a bunny, and get it on my website because I'm telling you first right now. Uh, we held the first Cordwood uh, Continental Cordwood Conference 
1994 here at Earthwood Building School, and there have been three since then, about, about five years between conferences. There was another one in southern New York, there was one in uh, Maryland, Wisconsin, and then in 2011 there was one in Manitoba. And this will be the fifth conference, and we'll be back to its place of origin here at Earthwood. And it's in 2015, uh, July of 2015. We don't have the date yet, but it'll be a, a two-day conference in July of 2015. Uh, it'll cover a lot of the top corridor builders in the world will be here. And this, we're trying to accent international corridor in this one. It's being done now throughout Europe, in Korea, South America, Australia, New Zealand, of course, Canada. Uh, all over the United States. So we, we want to try to accent an international um, conference, um, and it'll be here in Earthwood in July of 2015. So again, don't look for that on our website at the moment because I haven't put it on there yet. I've been biding my time, but now I'm going to have to do it. All right. So, Rob, anything else you want to add to this podcast? No, gee, I think we went through a, a lot of different stuff. Um, I a little bit of everything. We sure did. Um, but uh, we cover all, all our books and videos are available at the same website. And um, people can wander around there for a while. And we're on Facebook as well, Earthwood Building School. My wife keeps up the Facebook side of things. I can't figure out Facebook, but she does a good job at it. So she puts all kinds of new stuff on there all the time. It's the Earthwood Building School Facebook site. Excellent. And, and people can find the link to that uh, from cordwoodmasonry.com, right? Yes, yes, they can. And if they're interested in megalithics, uh, they might uh, want to consider the Sophia Project in September. There's, we're looking for volunteers. Uh, we're trying to get 60 or 80 strong young bodies from the anthropology department at SUNY New Pulse to help us move this stone. From past experience, I reckon we're going to need between 60 and 80 people to uh, transport and erect a 50-ton stone. And, and what would be the date on that? Well, we don't have an exact date, but it'll be one of the first two weekends after Labor Day in September. And I have the September okay. calendar in front of me, so it would probably be either the uh, 6th, 7th, and 8th, Friday to uh, Sunday, or it could be more likely the 13th, 14th, and 15th. But uh, uh, um, we're, we're creating a new website called uh, uh, movingbigstones.com. It's not up yet. My bigstones.com website is still up. But it's it's ancient. Uh, we can't get into it right now to repair it. So there's some interesting stuff on it. And people can go to bigstones.com and see some of our previous megalithic work. But we're working on a new one called movingbigstones.com, and I'm hoping within a couple of weeks that'll become the vehicle for the Sophia project. All right. So <clears throat> I'm going to say it's a wrap. Okay. Uh, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about frugal living, homesteading, and permaculture all the time.